My name is Jocelyn McClure. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, uh, things may get a little bit angsty. Maybe a little <laughs> bit lonely. Maybe a little bit slow. Yes, that's right. We're talking about Antonioni. Michelangelo Antonioni. My God, what an introduction for one of the titans of world cinema. One of the most important filmmakers of his era. Already showing him all the proper respect. One of the filmmakers that when you get into film school, the person goes, ugh, I don't like that guy because I'm cool. Well, it's hard to like Antonioni when you are 18 years old in film school. I know that because I myself, you know, saw La Ventura when I was, I think, 19 or so. Didn't really get it. But over time, I've and especially lately, I've definitely come to love Antonioni. I think he's a tricky filmmaker to articulate the virtues of because there's a lot to appreciate in these movies intellectually, of course. But I think what I really get from them is this overwhelmingly powerful vibe. Oh, I completely agree with you because the characters in the films, that's what they're experiencing themselves as well. I I would say it's the opposite for me because I saw Red Desert first and I loved it. I'm like, "Mm, this is what I like. This is misery, beautiful looking, a character just kind of wandering through these toxic landscapes, the emotions and thematic material I could grasp onto very easily, which I don't don't know if it would have happened if I would have seen, for example, uh, The Eclipse first, because maybe I would have had a little bit more difficulty, but because Red Desert is just right there in your face, all of the thematics are in beautiful, ugly colors, I could latch on very easily. And since then, whenever I watch one of his movies, I'm like, oh yeah, I get it. Even though he's not a filmmaker, I like spin to, you know, have a fun time and decompress. Well, last week when we were talking about Vilmos Zygmunt, the cinematographer, we talked a lot about the beautiful ugliness of his films. And I think you're right. There are so few filmmakers who made such beauty out of such ugliness. In fact, not even ugliness, just emptiness as Michelangelo Antonioni. I'm talking about bland, brutalist architecture, boring, wide open spaces, and just long stretches of emptiness and boredom that this man grasped and molded like modeling clay and turned into something hypnotic. Antonioni said himself in an interview, I have a need to follow my characters beyond the conventional moments, the moments considered important. I want to show them even when everything has appeared to be said. And that's what his movies are. That's why people consider them boring is that these characters often don't have many goals that they're going toward. They are just trying trapped in a world where they feel miserable and they can't understand why that misery is something that they're experiencing. Antonioni really landed on the map through a loose trilogy of films from the early 60s, all of which dealt with the ennui and spiritual emptiness of the upper classes. Ugh, we're rich. We have everything. Why are we not happy? The films, of course, are La Ventura from 1960, La Notte from 1961, and Le Clis from 1962. And I I watched all three of them pretty recently within the last six months, and they all had just a very strong impact on me. And, you know, he really communicates his ideas very powerfully and very complexly. I mean, when you talk about Le Clis at the end, 
Like that is a pure visual montage. The absence of the characters is what is powerful about that entire sequence. My God, I hadn't seen Lake Cleese until a couple months ago. And so, you know, most of the movie is about this love affair, this short affair between uh, a book translator played by Monica Vitti and this stockbroker played by Alain Delon. And they live in a world where everything is defined by money and possessions. Like there's a scene in the movie where they see a car accident and they start talking about the money that will be lost because of this car accident. So much of the movie, as I said, like takes place in these like kind of beautifully composed shots of ugliness. And there's just this overpowering, like, I, I don't want to say the word ennui, but, you know, because yeah, you just said it, ennui. There's this overpowering bad feeling that, that keeps building, this overwhelming feeling of emptiness. And then that last montage I almost fell out of my chair when the movie ended because it's like, oh my God, I can't believe he ended a movie like that where like the characters just disappear and it's as if the bad feeling like infects all of Rome. You know, you see all these spaces in Rome and it's just this like apocalyptic emptiness. I don't know how else to describe it. Like, this is one that I struggled with a little bit because it seemed like it was an extension of the thematics of La Ventura, but because it was kind of structured over a relationship she had with Alain Delon, because I didn't care about Alain Delon at all, that he was just an awful person, that by the end I'm like, good, they should go upon their lives separate from each other. They are uh, not in any kind of situation to have any kind of romantic relationship. Well, the, the one that I probably found most powerful was La Notte, which is about a failing marriage between Marcello Mastroianni and Jean Moreau. And much of it plays out at this party that's taking place at, you know, a chic mansion. And Antonioni's visual style is so orderly. It's so geometric. It's almost grid-like. It's kind of something that compresses what you're seeing on screen. And that's something that looks beautiful in just, you know, a single frame, if you were flipping through a magazine, becomes oppressive when you have to live with it for two plus hours. And these characters are trapped in this situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like everyone is so carefully arranged in the frame. It's so visually beautiful, but it's also airless. And you know, it's a particularly nuanced visual strategy because it would be one thing to just depict the bourgeoisie as, you know, decadent and grotesque. Fellini-esque, for example. Yeah, Fellini-esque, or, you know, even a little, some of Pasolini. But to depict it as tasteful and glamorous and beautiful, but also, like, dead. Yeah, it's hermetically sealed in front of you. And the characters are constantly trying to understand why they feel the way that they feel. And they cannot grasp it, cannot make a decision to go beyond it. In this trilogy, and even the movies that he made before this, Antonioni was often showing this from the perspective of a woman who had even less control than the men in the story or in life. Like, they cannot escape this misery that is upon them, even though that if somebody walked through it for a minute, they'd be like, oh, I wish I could have that. That looks so beautiful when it is the opposite of that. We're going backwards through this trilogy, but let's talk about La Ventura from 1960, which... Oh, I'm in the con audience in 1960. Boo! Boo! Yeah, I mean, this movie, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that this movie was revolutionary at the time. You know, it didn't provide catharsis. It didn't provide answers to the manifolds, questions and mysteries it raised. And, you know, that was incredibly challenging. But also, I think like a year or two later, it was already in the top 10 of the sight and sound poll. Wow, really? Yeah, it was like 
immediately hailed as like like this was a huge conversation topic but then people like critic robin wood would say that uh antonioni he became very self-indulgent after la Ventura. <laughs> all the movies before it were better well the elevator pitch for this movie is you got a small group of people who go on vacation to an island and one of them mysteriously disappears she disappears before the movie is half over and we never find out what happened to her and pretty quickly everyone goes on with their lives now did you hear a big spoiler alert for la Ventura, our movie uh many years old that uh antonioni said in an interview oh yeah we filmed her body washing up on the shore but i just didn't uh include it in the movie holy shit could you could you imagine (laughs) (laughs) film history would have been so different if he did that (laughs) yeah uh it's really funny that he said that uh during an interview with alain robgrier the director of many films and also the screenwriter of last year at Marion Bad after Alain Rebrier was like I feel like the way that you use the camera is supposed to illustrate this missing character is following her friends to see what they're gonna do and then Antonioni was like no 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 that's not true <laughs> just shutting them right down but you know what death of the author doesn't matter well to get into the plot uh, in a little bit more detail the woman who disappears is Anna, played by Leah Massar, who's dating Sandro, played by Gabrielle Fazzetti, and Anna's best friend is Claudia, Monica Vitti, who's the main character. They're on this vacation in an island near Sicily with two other couples, and there are these strange tensions that start emerging, like Anna goes swimming, and she says that a shark is attacking her, and so Sandro goes to save her, and Anna later admits, yeah, yeah, I made up the shark thing. Well, Anna is clearly incredibly depressed. Yeah, we see her and Sandro having like a conversation where they talk about how they're unhappy in their relationship, but like not being able to kind of grasp or get a handle on what the unhappiness is. You find a boring. Get out of there. Go, go do something new. And then after Anna disappears, Claudia spends much of the rest of the movie looking for Anna, but, you know, eventually gives up. Eventually, I mean, very quickly after Anna disappears, Sandro kisses Claudia. This guy who's supposed to be bereaved is already, like, trying to hook up with her. What a piece of shit. Eventually they get together, but then that union is complicated by the fact that there's this kind of movie star character who enters the picture who may also be a prostitute yeah it's almost like uh life is filled with change and if you try to hold on to anything it will only lead to your own misery i found this movie i i mean i think the secret to enjoying antonioni is like people people say he's cold and you've gotta you gotta find how powerful and how emotional that coldness can be like it's not it's not a lack of emotion it's an inability to express emotion well, the characters that's what they're struggling with in the stories that he's presenting on screen is that whatever situation that they're trapped in they are incapable of expressing joy really or love when the situation demands it and the fact that they can't kind of sends them deeper into a spiral of misery. And so the the films, when they're at their best, he's not presenting any of the reasons why this would be other than a deep humanistic kind of feeling that I think anybody watching has experienced in some way to be in a situation that you've either always wanted to be in and realize, why am I not happy? And why can I not take or even this little happy fleeting feeling and keep it for a long amount of time? Why does it disappear so quickly? And why do I feel the need to self-destruct as the only reaction in the face of these things? Yeah, I think it's easy to look at these movies and say, 
you know, it's hard to connect to them. Yeah. Oh, rich people problems. Take that difficulty to connect and then lean into it. The fact that there's friction between you and the movie can be productive. The fact that it's resisting any effort for you to grasp onto it. The movie's emotion is in that, you know, the fact that the people in the movie can't can't express uh, are are repe- are repelling any attempt for you to connect to them because they don't know how to take that connection. I don't know if that makes sense. But at the same time, I think that you are making it sound more difficult than it actually is because the movies are beautiful looking as well. <laughs> like Antonioni it gets tangled in like slow cinema talk. But I think that compared to what you could call slow cinema now... You know, you're right. The first Antonioni movie I ever saw was The Passenger, which I saw during its theatrical release, re-release in like 2006. I don't know if you remember that, but like, I think Jack Nicholson owned the rights for a lot of years. Yeah. And so he worked a deal with Sony Pictures Classics and they put it out in theaters. And I I saw it and I don't think I liked it, but I don't think I'd ever seen a movie that was quite that slow before. And... The, the last scene of the movie, without giving much away, it's like the camera does a very slow, like, move outside of a window, and then it turns around to look at the hotel room again. I remember looking at that and thinking, oh my god, I've never seen anything this slow before. And, I mean, I'm, I looked at it again this week, and it's like, oh, fuck, compared to, like, Sai Ming Lang, this zips along. <laughs> this is nothing! Yeah. You got a moving camera! <laughs> and you can wonder, like, oh, what are the technical feats that they're trying to pull off to make this camera move work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you look behind the scenes, it's insane what they did just for that. Hey, let's talk about The Passenger, since we both watched it this sure. week. Sure. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna start right from the beginning, is that, eh, The Passenger kind of left me cold i get it i liked it quite a bit we can get into that though i'm interested to hear from you why you found it cold i think it lacks some of the perfection of the earlier ones you know what i mean i think that what i'm probably going to bring up is going to be more from a personal perspective than it would be the qualities of the film itself and just because who i am while i'm watching it but what's the plot of the movie okay jack nicholson plays david locke who is a journalist reporting in Africa. He's in a hotel, very small hotel, very sparsely populated hotel, where he meets this other resident named Robertson. They talk a bit, but he knows nothing about him. A day later, he goes to Robertson's room, finds him dead. So Locke decides to just impulsively, without explanation, switch identities with Robertson. He switches their passport photos, puts on his clothes, takes his agenda, reports. Locke reports himself, Robertson, as dead. And then Locke decides to continue living as Robertson and leave everything behind. Leave behind his wife, his partner, his business partner, his the film that he was making. And just like a Philip DeBroca film, he goes on wacky adventures because, uh-oh, the guy that he took the identity of is a gunrunner. That's right. So, and in fact, he is a gunrunner who is was working with the the same guerrilla forces that Locke himself was trying to interview as as a journalist, as a filmmaker. He spends the whole second half of the movie running, basically, just just driving. He picks up along the way a girl played by Maria Schneider, who is an even more sketchy character than he is. In fact, she doesn't even have a name. She's just the girl in the credits. And they go together and uh, we we still don't really learn why he's leaving everything behind. There's a memorable scene where he's driving in the car and she says, what are you running from? And he says, turn around. And she turns around and she just looks looks at the road going behind him. You know, the point being that he, does, he doesn't know why he's running away. I can understand watching a passenger and just falling into it and seeing a reflection, almost a wish fulfillment of... 
oh, wow, this really speaks to me as something that, you know, it's reflecting my ideas. Well, I do think there is a certain amount of wish fulfillment to this movie. Like, <laughs> he even meets a young woman, a beautiful young woman that he sleeps with. She doesn't even have a name. Um, But at the same time, it's like, it's insanity what he's doing. Like, it's incredibly, like, cruel and selfish to the people that he leaves behind. Like, I don't think the movie is exactly into the wild, you know? No, no, I don't think so either. And in fact, like, Jack Nicholson, you've got one of the most charismatic actors who's ever lived, and he's here as a character with no motivation, no ideas, seemingly no inner life. And the movie... Like, like the movie just becomes like, uh, this is gonna sound bad, like, but like pure nothingness in a way. It's an escapism of some sort. It is. Yeah. That nothingness uh, a viewer can project themselves on it. And because the images are so beautiful, like Maria Schneider, the camera under her, as you have her framed uh, with trees just blowing past, there is beauty there. And it's almost like a POV shot of the viewer projecting themselves in the story that they're seeing. I found it beautiful as a movie. I agree. I guess there is a kind of fantasy element to it. But it's not it's not so much that like I wanted to live Jack Nicholson's lifestyle in this movie, really. No, but you wanted to. And I think a lot of people feel this way. It's like, what if I escaped? Like, what if I changed my life? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what it is. It's like, what if what if what if someone did this? And I think that uh, at the end of the day, I'm like, I think I just see it from like a selfishness standpoint. I found it difficult to connect in the same way that we've been saying about all those previous films, which is like, don't have any problems. Like, if you don't connect, don't fight the movie. Just get lost in it. Like, I was with the film for like 40 minutes and then suddenly it's like something came undone. And I was like, this is beautiful. I'm very enjoy. I enjoy watching it, but I just don't care. Well, hey, I got another movie for you, though. Uh, a movie that came midway between La Ventura and The Passenger, uh, from 1970, it's called Zabriskie Point. Ooh, I like Zabriskie Point. And I think this movie needs a little bit of context. I, I revisited this one this week. And in 1968 or 69, I can't remember which year, it doesn't matter. And Antonioni had his biggest international success, a movie that was a genuine blockbuster, an art house blockbuster of a kind that like never happens anymore. And it was called Blow Up. It is actually very much like all of his other movies. It's about a photographer in Swing in London who takes a picture and he, blowing up the picture, realizes he may have captured a murder. And what's important is that photographer, played by David Hemmings, real piece of shit. I mean, he is, uh, you know, your typical not very good person Antonioni lead. Antonioni basically transposes his ideas of like the emptiness of bourgeois life and society in Rome to swing in London. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, including the fact that there was some nudity in the film, uh, it became a huge international success. Full frontal nudity! They is not quite full frontal nudity because like in that scene the girls are very like strategically like there, there was always a suggestion that like maybe there's a little bit of pubic hair that's visible mm. but i'm not sure if anyone actually found it maybe they did scientists have yet to uh, share their findings but anyway this movie was so big that he got to make a full-on american super production big budget american movie that movie was zabriskie point yeah he brought all the stars rod taylor uh, gd spradlin is in there all the stars and i think that zabriskie point is really interesting because it mixes you know antonioni's documentary tendencies which he did before he did his first fictional film story of a love affair and that he would continue on with a giant doc that he made for china and tries to bring them into uh, this whole kind of hippie movement, but at the same time, it wants to blow it up. Yeah, it is an attempt to capture America 
in 1970. We're at the height of the Vietnam War. We're not long after the massacre at Kent State. We have two main characters, one of whom is a kind of white student radical, and another one of whom is kind of like a hippie girl. And, you know, they're living in a West Coast, Los Angeles of consumerism and There's all this bourgeois decadence, and there's also chaos in the student activism. And what do they do? They go out into the desert, and they make love, and they have... Yeah, set to some Pink Floyd songs and some Rolling Stones. Yeah, they they get back out to nature. They make love. They uh, talk a lot, maybe a little bit too much, frankly. And then, yeah, describe that big climactic scene, if you would, please. It's consumerism exploding in front of the screen, literally, in slow motion, watching giant mansions just explode all over the place and a refrigerator both explode repeatedly over and over again in slow motion and uh, this movie has some i mean it was a huge flop in its day widely derided critically empty pointless all the buzzwords you can find i think it's had a bit of a reappraisal over the years it has a bit of a cult following now partly because it's a fascinating historic document. It captures something of the mood of the times. It's also just, if you let yourself go, if you let yourself just live in it and not ask too many questions about what it's saying, it's an incredibly beautiful experience. Yeah, well, there's so much to see. And Antonioni is in his full-on zoom period. I mean, he's zooming in with a long lens, which compresses the frame and makes things feel off and much closer together. Faces just like right up in the frame with the background, seemingly touching them the entire time. And it gives you a vision of the world that you don't really associate when you think of like a 70s photograph because there's something raw about it, but also something that's distancing because that is his style. Like you don't really connect with any of these characters and the emptiness of their lives is something that you feel as well as a viewer and you just get hit with it full on when it's just kind of blown up in the very lengthy climax of this picture that we've already talked about. It's clear that he isn't quite as comfortable in the West Coast USA student milieu as he was in bourgeois Rome. But I think his outsider foreign eye, outsider foreign gaze, like, is productive here. You know, it it makes everything look a little weirder and a little stranger and a little more distinctive. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that he has much of an incisive, like, point that he's trying to make other than capturing it as a kind of chaos and that they're going through the emptiness that you see in his previous pictures. And there is a uh, missing kind of sharpness to the kind of images and the characters and the situations that he's capturing. But I still think that it's worthwhile as a picture of this time that not enough films were able to capture in that way. It kind of reminds me of um, Jacques Demy's Model Shop. Have you ever seen that one? No, I want to, though. It has the same kind of aimless feel, but it's a little bit warmer, but it has that the same kind of like stylistic conceits and the kind of empty protagonist that you're following in the middle of all of it after the passenger i kind of lose touch with 
Antonioni's work. I, I don't really know a lot about what he made after The Passenger. In the early 60s and the 50s, arthouse filmmakers like him and Bergman and Fellini were getting written about a lot internationally, and they were getting big international distribution. I know that in the 80s, basically all of those, all of the European arthouse guys, like Fellini and Herzog, and I guess Antonioni as well, like they weren't getting widely distributed in the US anymore. So after The Passenger, Antonioni made uh, The Mysteries of Oberwald, which was his experiment, very early uh, video technology. He shot the whole film on video, then transferred it to 35 millimeter, and it's supposed to look uh, very weird, but not that compelling, kind of like a um, Guy Madden film. And then basically after that, from 1982, the identification of a woman onward, his films would be about filmmakers. Like, um, how do you find inspiration? Like, how do you find a subject of a movie that you want to adapt? And it should be noted that in 1985, he had a massive stroke that made him incapable of talking or writing comprehensively. I did see that omnibus film that came out in the 2000s, Eros, which it was three erotic or at least sex-themed short films by Antonioni, Wong Kar Wai, and Steven Soderbergh. Yep, I remember it was a big deal when it was coming out at the time. I remember the consensus around it was that the Wong Kar Wai segment was the best one, and the Antonioni one was like kind of an embarrassment, which is what I thought when I saw it as a teenager, but I kind of feel like if I watched it again now, I might be a little bit more generous to the Antonioni segment, which is just kind of like, it is basically just like an erotic piffle right? Like it's an old man hanging out with some young, young naked actors, you know, I'd be more sympathetic to that now. I really enjoyed reading My Time with Antonioni, The Diary of an Extraordinary Experience, which was written by Vim Vendors about how uh, Antonioni, when they made the uh, movie Beyond the Clouds in 1995, Antonioni was so out of it that nobody wanted to give him money unless Vim Vendors was like over his shoulder waiting to pick up the camera in case anything happened. And it's a really um, interesting look into who he is as an artist, where he was at that point of his career, and like how his work had impacted someone like Vim Vendors. So if people want to know about Antonioni, I recommend reading that book. It doesn't get talked about that much for obvious reasons about making a movie that nobody really liked. But yeah, definitely recommend that. And it's wild. Like he couldn't talk, couldn't write. How do you do anything at that point? Especially something creative like a movie. Well, he managed to do it. He got a bunch of naked actors together and he made a 40 minute short film. And and I think that is to be admired. Yeah. And good thing Orson Welles and the other side of the wind took him down. a peg. I, That is so funny that like. In the other side of the wind, Wells was like, "Ugh, Antonioni, it's so empty, it's so pointless. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make fun of Zabriskie Point, and then he just like recreates the beauty of Zabriskie Point." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wonder if Wells was like, you know what, Antonioni is good. Wells just didn't like Antonioni because Antonioni was successful and Wells wasn't. That's all it was. You know, whenever I think of Antonioni, actually, the first thing I think about now is. Uh, William Friedkin on the movies that made me podcast where where he's 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 talking about how much he hated the other side of the wind and he says something like Orson Welles in his later years wasn't fit to carry Antonioni's jock strap Antonioni <laughs> has made films that made me think deeply about the human condition what do you think about Exorcist 2 crap the worst movie ever you know Trump has the potential to be a great president <laughs> All right. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Patrick O'Donnell. And it goes, hey, Justin and Will, 
Just wanted to drop you two a line and say I've really been enjoying the podcast. I've enjoyed Michael and us as well as Will's Twitter presence, but never explored until I saw you had done episodes on Sam Fuller, Simon Lang, a Pitchapong, we're a cool. Oh, almost there. It's a hard one. Three filmmakers I've been exploring lately. In a week, I've already devoured a bunch of episodes, joined the Patreon, and bought the book. Well, thank you. You've joined the cult. In the last year, I've really rediscovered my love of cinema due to being cooped up in the house. I worked in a DVD rental store that focused on cult indie foreign films for years in college and used to go to the theater regularly. But over the years, work and life and the degradation of my attention span meant I would rather just have something in the background while I looked at my phone. Slowly getting that attention span back has been extremely rewarding. Uh, not something that's easy for everyone, I should add. This is Justin speaking. Yeah, now we've all been there. One of the filmmakers I've really dived into in quarantine has been Jacques Rivette, and I'd love to throw him out as a possible future episode. I have always wanted to see Sidney and Julie go boating, and decided to take the leap when I saw it was on the Criterion channel. I was absolutely enchanted, and then tracked down Paris Belongs to Us, The Nun, Duel Noiroux, Merry Go Round, et La Pont du Nord. Absolutely loved most of them. I've been waiting on a good point to start out one, but that's next, followed by better regarded 80s, 90s works like La Belle Noisseuse. One of the big questions I've had with Rivette is just how marginal a figure he is in film history, despite being a key part of the KE French New Wave crowd. Jonathan Rosenbaum's website has been invaluable as he's been a champion of Rivette since the 70s, when seemingly no one else was writing about his films in English. I'd love to hear your thoughts, and it feels timely since Criterion is finally releasing Celine and Julie on disc. I'd especially love to hear any thoughts on the many, many films Rivette made that seem to barely exist commercially or critically. I would say that the reason that we haven't done Jacques Rivette is because his movies are very long. That's the main reason, but I love Jacques Rivette, and thanks to Johnson Rosenbaum who introduced me to him, he is one of my passions of the filmmakers that I really, really uh, find his films fascinating, even though I find them sometimes baffling, and I agree with this letter writer, there is not very much written in English about him, other than stuff that Jonathan Rosenbaum himself edited. But I think that's changing, because like, Arrow put out that box set, The Nun was put out by Kino? It was Kino, Kino put it out, yeah. And like, Céline Julie uh, Go Boating is coming out on Criterion uh, Blu-ray soon, so yeah, he's definitely having a second renaissance. He is one of the easy go-to directors, I feel, if you want a little bit of art house cred, because his films are very long and elliptical. Yeah, I would love to know more about Rivette. I've only seen a few of his movies. I have to admit, I find him an intimidating subject just because there's so much of him and it's so long. And do me and Will both have that Out One box set sitting on our shelves unwatched? Of course we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> our next letter is from Stephen Mortland, and it goes... Justin and Will, thanks for the podcast. I've been picking away through the archives, discovering a lot of filmmakers I wouldn't otherwise delve into. I also recently became a patron and I've already found it very much worthwhile. All right. Thank you for writing that letter. Let us slip a little bit of money your way for saying that it's worthwhile to become a Patreon subscriber. I would love to hear you guys talk about something like Raising a Cinephile. You each on occasion have referenced certain films that you watch at a relatively young age that contributed to the passion you have for cinema today. As someone who is raising children and wants them to appreciate good art, I'm wondering what films you would identify as great gateway films for the young. The question is all the more relevant as there is so much annoying and subpar media available to children that is algorithmically guaranteed to shape their preferences. I know that neither of you have children, so you might consider yourselves unqualified to give this sort of advice. But I have kids and I'm asking, so consider that your qualification. I think you should just show them winter light and tell them this is what life is like. It's cold, it's empty, 
This is what you are to expect. And then throw on Lavantura as well and be like, listen, even if you get everything, you'll still be miserable. And if they don't like it, punish them. Punish them. And the letter continues. Brief background. My daughter is four years old. So far, she has really connected with all the Chaplin and Keaton stuff I've shown her. Her favorites are probably Modern Times, City Lights, and Keaton's One Week. She also surprisingly sat through most of Hawk's Bringing Up Baby with me. She, of course, also watches plenty of trash, too. I'm not a monster. She's currently been on a Scooby-Doo kick. I've been surprised at how receptive she is to most of what I've shown, and I'm wondering where to go next. Thanks for the podcast, Stephen. Well, Will, I know that he just robbed you of the recommendations you were going to make. Those were exactly what I was going for. Chaplin and Keaton, yes. But if your kid loves Scooby-Doo, show her Abbott and Costello uh, meet Frankenstein. Oh, fantastic suggestion. I'm also going to throw out maybe Time Bandits by Terry Gilliam. Ooh, that's a good one, too. A beautiful film that is weird and a little bit scary, and I think also requires a different attention span from kids than some of the other stuff they might be watching. You know, it's a little slower. It's a little it's a little stranger. That can get a kid maybe thinking differently about I mean, film. if they're already watching black and white films, they're probably pretty open to most stuff, as opposed to me and Will, who probably saw black and white stuff through the Three Stooges. Hey, do you think do you think a kid that age, uh, a girl, four-year-old, would like kung fu stuff? Like, would she like Jackie Chan? Yes, definitely. Because if she likes uh, Keaton and Chaplin, Jackie Chan is just another physical form of that. And the good thing when you're a four-year-old, you usually don't find stuff slow. At least that's how it was when I was a kid. So any like quibbles about the structure of something like Rumble in the Bronx wouldn't bother you. And you would just force your parents to watch it again and again and again. Yeah. Wait, what would be a good like opening Jackie Chan film, though? Not Rumble in the Bronx, I would say, only because it's a little violent. Maybe Super Cop, some of Super Cop. Is that is that, or is that too slow? Would you say or <laughs> uh, the Spy Next Door? Clearly, or Around the World in Eighty Days? Yeah, no, Around the World in Eighty Days is a good one. Yeah, that's good. What about like the Young Master? Would a kid like the Young Master? Maybe. Mm, I mean, considering am, that, the... or am I just insane? Yeah, it's <laughs> tough because. Jackie Chan cinema is often based on pain. Yeah. <laughs> While, you know, Keenan and Chaplin, that's not what they base themselves on. And the young master definitely revels in that pain, I would say. <laughs> is that like, that's where a lot of the comedy comes from. Anything was prop fighting. I think a kid could really glom onto that and understand that is a comedic device. Yeah, just show us some YouTube super cuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Don't watch the movies. That's the important cinema club recommendation. <laughs> Speaking of Jackie Chan, oh, I want to wet people's whistles. We have a uh, real big Jackie project coming soon. And me and Will are so excited oh, about cannot it. Cannot wait. Gonna be good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, moving on. Oh, we should talk about Patreon a little bit because, Will, I think I, I'm gonna, I want to change things up a little bit. Oh, what are you doing? So I've been looking online and been noticing some uh, other podcasts. They only do two Patreon episodes a month. <laughs> That's crazy. Hey, hang on, hang on. Some of those other podcasts may have been upping, may have been upping it a bit lately. Been giving people a little more value for dollar, which is what we could use uh, around here. Some more value for dollar. Yeah. Speaking of dollars, uh, some of us may have been uh, jobless for a few months. Not going to name any names. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's very possible that somebody has been. So you know, give, give generously. Uh, be 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 charitable. Yeah. Listen, the university uh, system is not really helpful right now to people seeking work. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was we're changing up the $10 tier. Essentially, anyone who's been subscribed for the last few months may not have been uh, receiving a newsletter. It's because... I have had much difficulty sending one out every month. So it's switching to quarterly that I'll be sending out a newsletter to anybody on the $10 tier. Also, anybody on the $10 tier at the beginning of the month will be able to vote one of our Patreon episodes will be. I think we'll probably put up three choices and they'll be able to vote on which movie they want us to talk about. And that episode 
at the end of the month will disappear. Wow. Yeah. So if you are not a Patreon subscriber at the $5 level, you will be missing out on episode every month. Because listen, everybody knows how you subscribe to a Patreon of a show you kind of like, even though if you listen to it every week, you become a Patreon subscriber every six months. You download all the episodes and then you're good. Then you unsubscribe. Now you won't be able to do that because you'll be missing out. So by the time you listen to this, uh, there will be a poll up and you can pick what one of our Patreon episodes will be of the upcoming month. And then after four weeks, once that episode is posted, that episode will disappear. So you better become a Patreon subscriber. Don't miss out. What is it? FOMO? Fear of missing out. Wow, I haven't felt FOMO in a long time. (laughs) Nobody has because we're all trapped at home. And now we're... um... We're bringing it back. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So, speaking of Patreon, what are we doing this week, Will? We are talking about one of the most acclaimed movies of recent years, which isn't even a movie at all, but some people would have you believe that it's a movie, and that is O.J. Made in America, the much-loved O.J. Simpson documentary of a few years back. And we talk about O.J. Simpson memories, we determine once and for all who the real killers are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, we put our true crime hats on and we really get to the bottom of it. The answer may surprise you. And we also talk about... True crime as yeah, well. Yeah, so uh, sign up and come join us in uh, in an adventure. <laughs> Please, we need your money. <laughs> Just naked desperation. So what are we doing next week, Will? Next week, with coming to America fever sweeping the nation. Have you watched it yet? Yeah, I watched it two days ago. It was bad. We are taking this as an opportunity to finally discuss the career of Mr. Eddie Murphy. We will be talking about such classic films as, I mean, I'm just, I'm just gonna, we haven't talked about this, but I'm- Beverly Hills Cop? Beverly Hills Cop, obviously. Adventures of Pluto Nash? Uh, oh, shit. Um, okay, should we watch 48 Hours? Uh, well, I think we should do one or the other, Beverly Hills Cop or- 48 hours. Okay, I mean, God, are we going to watch one of his bad ones? Are we going to watch, like, Daddy Daycare or some fucking show? No, if we do Pluto Nash, that's the bad one. We get... How about we do this? We do... Beverly Hills Cop, we do one in the middle that we'll pick over the next week, and we'll do one of the bad ones for now with Pluto Nash, which I have never seen. I got it. I got the middle one. The Nutty Professor. Let's watch that. Oh, yeah, because that was an actual hit. People had Nutty Professor fever at the time. Uh, I'm very excited about this. You know, I want to laugh, so let's <laughs> laugh with Eddie. So until next week when we'll be filled with laughs, my name's Justin the Glue. I'm Will Sloan. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Justin, here to thank some of our new patron subscribers, who include Kaylin Penny, Phoebe, Peter Mange, Greg McGuire, Alexis Nelson, The Art of B, Adam Walters, Dennis Rowland, Paul Murick, Daniel Hansen, Patrick Gramelian, Chris, and Matthew. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. And we now return you to your regular scheduled program. Well, I saw on your letterbox and Twitter that you were visiting with an old friend in the last few days. That's right. I took a rocket ship and blasted off to the Viewisk universe. (laughs) It's legal now. Snooch to the nooch. You know, I, I got to tell you, Justin, we've been we've been doing this podcast for five years now, but uh, Justin's clit, taint, and brown area still totally pones my dick. You know, when you say that now, it's like going to meet an old friend. It's like it's. I, I laugh like, oh yes, I remember the fun times we used to have. Oh man, oh, it feels like we haven't talked about Kevin Smith since we talked about Jay and Silent Bob reboot a hundred years ago. Well, in the early days of doing this podcast oftentimes after recording justin and i would watch a kevin oh, yeah. smith Cop movie out. we watched clerks too oh god which which is shit total shit and uh, i don't think we ever went to jersey 
to see the Jersey Girl, but you know, I, God, did we? Fuck, no, we didn't. Uh, no, we didn't. We definitely did. I did not dust off the DVD on my shelf. Did we watch Yoga Hosers together? We did. Yes, right? we did because uh, we got somebody with an inside scoop that uh, we were able to watch it with. Oh God, yes, I remember that. Oh, f- holy fucking shit! So anyway, I watched Mall Rats because I don't know. I just I just wanted to go back. <laughs> yeah, you wanted to go home. I wanted to go back to Justin the Clue who got Mall Rats and copied it to another VHS so he could watch it whenever he like, wanted. didn't you enjoy the feeling of being a teenager and enjoying Mallrats? And then, yeah, the movie that nobody likes. I get it more than other people do. But then, even better, listening to the commentary track. It's like hanging out with friends, <laughs> making fun of Ben Affleck the entire time. And I think for many years, like everyone of my generation, I had a, a period of apostasy with Kevin Smith. He sucks. He's bad. He's a, he's a sellout. He's doesn't have any talent. And maybe that's true. But also, like, I'm getting to an age now, I'm in my 30s, and I'm ready to, like, meet Kevin Smith more on his own terms. Be like, okay, you know, you you didn't turn out to be Richard Linkletter. You didn't become Jim Jarmusch. But maybe you were Kevin Smith, and maybe I can appreciate that. You know, Kevin Smith is definitely a sellout, like, doing interviews uh, on the IMDb yacht with whatever new TV show is coming along. Oh, my God. I I hate that side of him. I hate the side of him that's always, like... He genuinely enjoys it, though. Okay, he genuinely enjoys it. It, but he's also a fucking sellout. Yeah, a, definitely a sellout. But Will, if IMDb knocked on your door today and said, would you like to do this job? What would you say? Okay, but do you remember after Batman versus Superman came out and he said something about not liking it very much or he was making fun of it. And then two days later, he goes on Twitter and he's like, oh, I just saw it again. And and I thought it was really good. That's that's the studio coming to him and saying, buddy, we hold the purse strings here. You 100%. Know? <laughs> Listen, I made a TV show about what do the people think that aren't critics oh, about new movies. That whole fucking era of him was just insufferable. But we're going back, though, to Mallrats when he was the, you know, the new kid on the block. Well, I think one of the things that's kind of funny about him is he was not like the most ta- naturally talented of those Sundance guys, but people still watch his movies. They still quote and love his movies. Movies like Mallrats, movies like Dogma, Clerks. But speaking of like O.J. Simpson, does he have new fans? I would say no. And I think he said that himself, too. I don't know if that's true or not. I would actually like to know. I think that there are probably people who discover him through the podcast, but maybe not. I mean, when we went to see Jay and Silent Bob reboot, I didn't sense a lot of new fans No, there. it was just old fans. I think because someone told me that he was asked that in the Q&A and he was like, no, we don't have new young people really that watch our movies unless it's like adults forcing their children to like the film. You know, that crowd is stuck by him. Yeah, that's fine. Like he'll die and they'll, they'll outlive him. And that's impressive. I respect that he's been able to like nurture and sustain this fan base. Anyway, we keep trying to pivot back to Mallrats and I watched it really wanting to enjoy it, really thinking, okay, this is unpretentious fun, you know, snooch to the nooch or whatever. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. That was it's bad. bad. It's not, I mean, whenever I watch one of his old movies, I'm kind of amazed that this seemed so like fresh at the time. This seemed so original. Well, they're playing video games. <laughs> Bazoinga or whatever the Big Bang Theory guys are saying. Or everybody is just talking like, like they memorized a blog post and are, are just saying it. Oh my god. <laughs> no characters, just monologuing at each other. People used to compare him to David Mamet, okay? And that is <laughs> fucking madness. 
he is he is a terrible writer of dialogue. Wait, wait, wait. But let's get to the positive though. What did you enjoy about revisiting Mallrats? Well, I liked some of the vibes. I mean, it's a, a very easy movie to watch. Some of the, I mean, not all the actors. I thought Jeremy London was pretty bad. <laughs> well, but, there's a reason that he has dropped off the face of the earth. Uh, Jason Lee, I thought was pretty charismatic and fun. You got Joey Lauren Adams. You got the great Michael Rooker hamming it oh, up. Oh, just taking a big old bite of that scenery every time he's on screen. <laughs> Eating those pretzels, licking his li- fingers. Yeah, I don't know. I can't really mount a rational defense of it, except that it did to some extent remind me of like uh, being a teenager and watching this movie. And it was nice to see Jay and Silent Bob, you know, doing their doing their thing. Yeah, uh, pre, um, you know, strung out on heroin, Jay. It's a hard movie to hate. There's not much to hate mm-hmm. about it. It's it's just very mediocre and it's kind of affable. And all of Kevin Smith's movies give the vibe of being kind of like a you party. Know, but there is still one great Kevin Smith film, I would say, and that is Clerks. I'm going to need to revisit it and I plan to revisit it, but it is the most authentic one. And it's the one where all of his faults seem like style. Mm-hmm. I'm, I just shudder of having to revisit any of his other films. Chasing Amy dogma james allen bob reboot i don't want to watch those movies again. all right i watched chasing amy last year oh, we watched chasing amy together i think did we i can't remember that I'm, I'm not shocked anyway i watched it last year too and i could not get over how bad it looked just visually one of the ugliest looking films i've ever seen holy shit remember yoga hosers holy shit oh my god well and jay and silent bob reboot looks appalling all right, all right. We, we we kevin smith we just dug him up to bury him again hey can I, actually before we leave this topic forever uh did you like red state i appreciated what he tried and i didn't think it worked that sounds about right good john goodman performance Great john goodman performance maybe we should do a red state episode at some point let's do next week patreon done love it we can never quit you kevin smith <laughs> i love how you always like and that's the final word we'll ever have on that topic no nah, no nah, we're married to kevin we'll be buried with him